Hey there, Internet. I'm Annie. I'm Kit. And I'm Mac. And this is I Will Fight You, a podcast where we've been turning opinion at Stone Cold Facts since 1986. Kit, what's our fact today? I believe this one's yours. Yeah, this one's mine. And based on some absolutely nuclear discourse I've been seeing on Tumblr, thanks to the new interview with the Vampire TV show, it's going to be fictional relationships don't have to be healthy to be compelling. Yeah, we're not doing the new interview with the Vampire show, though, folks. We're going back. We're going back to 1994. <laughs> yeah, 1994. I am six years old. We're going to talk about Brad Pitt and Tom Cruise today. And Antonio Banderas, because we're going for the hat trick here, folks. Also Kirsten Dunst. Also Kirsten Dunst. A little baby girl Kirsten Dunst. A teeny tiny, like, 11-year-old Kirsten Dunst. <laughs> On that, before we start getting into this movie, Kit, I think you had collected some content warnings for us. Uh, yes. So this is a movie based off of a piece of gothic fiction. So content warning for everything, I guess. Basically anything that you can use vampirism to explore as a metaphor. It's done here. So like, vampirism as metaphor for rape, vampirism as metaphor for domestic violence, vampirism as a metaphor for child violence, vampirism as metaphor for addiction. There's also like, it takes place in the 1700s in New Orleans. So, oh boy, is there slavery. Uh, suicidal depression. There's suicidal depression, vampirism as a metaphor for that as well. Oh, and also the whole story is about the death of a child, like the whole thing. There's no skipping the death of a child. That's the movie. So if none of that sounds like your bag, I don't know why you clicked on an episode labeled Interview with the Vampire, but you're excused. You don't have to be here. <laughs> but we do. <laughs> so this is a movie... Again, from 1994, based off of a book, apparently had been in development hell for, like, almost 20 years at this point. Oh, boy. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> the book came out in, I think, 1976. And apparently Paramount Pictures bought the right to this one before the book even, like, came out, actually. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah. But then, you know, Paramount bought it, then sold it to Warner Brothers eventually. And then Warner Brothers eventually were like, okay, so what if we actually just make this fucking movie, huh? So they got Neil Jordan, who had recently directed in 1992 The Crying Game, to make this movie. Oh God, the Crying Game? I forgot that movie existed. <laughs> Wild choice, but it worked. <laughs> the Crying Game? Goddamn. <laughs> And then they proceeded to cast, like, three of the most famous actors in the world in the gay vampire movie, because that's what 1994 Hollywood was like. Yeah, but it's also 1994 Hollywood, so it's a gay vampire movie, but it's also an extremely heterosexual gay vampire movie. Yeah. <laughs> There's only so far they could go with... They got pretty damn close, honestly, to the point where, like, the joke review from Weekend Update on Saturday Night Live was, uh... Here's my review, um... Not gay enough. Okay, so here's like, here's some wild shit that I found out. I have two things for us. First off, this screenplay, the credit goes to Anne Rice for writing the screenplay because, you know. She would never let anybody else touch it. Oh, God. No, 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 absolutely no. not. Anne Rice and was so controlling of Vampire Chronicles, she's tried to kill this podcast several times in an attempt to record to this episode. From Beyond the Grave. Yeah. And, you know, because as we have seen, even in the last 10 years, whenever a novelist writes the screenplay themselves over an IP that they rigorously control without any input from anyone who might be, you know, good at writing screenplays, the results are always great. Yeah, terrific. Absolutely awesome results. No problems. <laughs> 
think Neil took a pass or two at this one. He did, actually. (laughs) Here's a Wikipedia read for y'all. Neil Jordan was intrigued by the script, calling it really interesting and slightly theatrical, which is damning with faint praise. (laughs) Oh, wow. (laughs) It's interesting. It's so unique. (laughs) Oh, God. But he was especially interested after reading Anne Rice's novel. He agreed to direct on the condition that he be allowed to write his own script, though he did not gain a writing credit. The themes of Catholic guilt, which pervade the novel, attracted Jordan, who called the story, quote, the most wonderful parable about wallowing in guilt that I'd ever come across. But these things are unconscious. I I don't have an agenda. (laughs) (laughs) So that's one thing. And the other thing relates to the incredibly heterosexual queerness of 1994. Listen to this shit. And I've been thinking about this since I read it. And I've wanted to see this movie that this thing makes me think of. Due to Anne Rice's perception of Hollywood's homophobia, at one point, she rewrote the part of Louis, changing his sex to female in order to specifically heterosexualize the character's relationship with Lestat. At the time, Rice felt that it was the only way to get the film made. And singer-actress Cher was considered for the part. Imagine what could have been. A song titled Lovers Forever, which Cher wrote along with Shirley Eichhardt for the film's soundtrack, got rejected as Brad Pitt was ultimately cast for the role, though a dance pop version of the song was released on Cher's 2013 album Closer to the Truth. We could have had a movie with Cher (laughs) as a vampire. (laughs) I don't care if that would have really been an interview with a vampire movie. I want to see a movie about vampire Cher. (laughs) And I've been thinking about that. Yeah. If she could turn back time. I'm kind of sad we don't live in that timeline now. (laughs) God. If I could find a way. Be a vampire. Be a vampire. That's the background that I dug up on this one, and I'm basically just going to be regretting for the rest of my life that I didn't get to see Interview with a Vampire starring Cher. And presumably still Tom Cruise. And presumably still Tom Cruise. Because Tom Cruise put his whole pussy into Lestat. Mm. Yeah, I hear like Anne Rice was campaigning against this for a long time, and then she saw the movie and she was like, yeah, that actually works. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know what it is about the role of Lestat, where they will cast an actor who is like the most just some guy. And then you're like, oh, that's just some guy. That guy's not going to be good as Lestat. And then Lestat does something to this person's brain. Like it happened with Sam Reed in the interview with the Vampire TV show as well. You're like, that's just a man. That's just some guy. And then you see him playing Lestat as like a cartoon pony on amphetamines. And you're like, oh, no, that, that we awakened something inside of this man. <laughs> yeah, like, you know, that weird, uncomfortable energy from the old like Tom Cruise jumping on a couch on Oprah. He brought that material. <laughs> This is my first exposure to Interview with a Vampire and Anne Rice's whole thing. I've just never really gotten into it, nor have I really played much of any of the, you know, White Wolf games of which Interview with a Vampire inspired many pieces of it. What about you, Mac? (laughs) In college, I was obsessed with this film. Mm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. That tracks. So I watched it a ton, but then I hadn't watched it until recently again. So that's like a 14 year jump. I, of course, played a lot of Vampire the Masquerade and Vampire the Requiem. There was this one point where one of my best friends was reading all of the Chronicles of the Vampires. So I was reading it too, but then around reading Queen of the Damned, I was like, I'm out. (laughs) (laughs) That is the tap out point for many. (laughs) 
I don't remember any of it. It just like has vanished from my brain. But I do remember the film, which of course I just watched. But I just remember watching this over and over again with all my friends and we were all wearing black. We're like, we're so cool. Oh, bless. Oh, little goths. Little goths. Little baby goths. Little baby goths and they're sad vampires. <laughs> Playing sad vampires in their service. <laughs> Pretending to be sad vampires. Kit, what about you? Like, you brought this movie to the table. I think the first time I saw this was sometime in my teens, and it didn't particularly stick in my brain at that point. And then I saw, you know, Queen of the Damned sometime in my teens, and I was like, that was dog shit. And The book and the movie both. Yeah. <laughs> and then I went on to, like, rewatch it, I think during COVID lockdown. And I was like, oh, actually, this this is sticking this time. I wonder if there's something going on in my life that would cause this movie to hit better. But from there, I watched the first season of the AMC TV show, which is, for the record, awesome. And then I started on a read-through of the Vampire Chronicles. So the interview with the vampire and the vampire Lestat are both fresh in my brain at present. So, so you brought this to the table knowing it was culturally relevant at the time. <laughs> You broke the creed! <laughs> it's not... Interview with the Vampire Season 1 came out, like, last year. It's not culturally relevant. Mm, I don't know. It's okay, we can make it not culturally relevant. I can talk about how my favorite picture from the original White Wolf publication of Vampire the Masquerade is, like, this biker guy standing in a bathroom in front of a bunch of nuns wearing <laughs> gas masks who are touching a naked lady. <laughs> That's a very good illustration, I have to say. Mackenzie, if you don't keep interspersing this movie with things about White Wolf games, I will be so sad. Please do that. <laughs> Please do this for me. Do my best for at least the first hour. For vampire people, the Toreadors in Vampire Masquerade, they're basically just Anne Rice vampires. That's their whole deal. Yeah. Also, just the whole vibe of it is sad to be a vampire here in the modern era. Except for Lestat, who's having a great time. Ah, <laughs> uh, you know, a broken clock. <laughs> That's low humanity, baby. Let's actually start digging into this. And we start in, in nighttime in San Francisco, which you know because we do the requisite pan across the Golden Gate Bridge. You must. Required. The law. It's like showing the Chrysler building in a movie about New York. Unless it's a movie from the 90s or earlier, in which case they show you the World Trade Center. We've been over why that's awkward. Whoopsie do. <laughs> we get to a hotel where we find this guy named Malloy. He's taking this interview with Louis, uh, who's Brad Pitt. Yeah, it's Christian Slater playing this reporter in his Heathers era, despite it being, it's like six years after Heathers, but he is in perfect Heathers form here. Yeah, I don't think he's ever actually named in this movie, but he doesn't get named in interview either. He does get named later on. I don't remember if the screenplay actually lists it, but he is credited. They did give a name to this character for the credits. Maybe there was a version of the script where like, he actually like was addressed by name or something. Yeah, well, he got a name later on in like Queen of the Damned, which I think came out before this movie did. That would explain why I know his name is Malloy. It turns out his name is Daniel Malloy. Yeah. In an interview with the vampire of the book, he's just called The Boy, which is not an indicator of his age because Louis refers to everyone under the age of like 50 as a boy. Yeah, but if you're going to call someone The Boy now to me, I'm just going to immediately Brahms think of boy. Brahms. Yeah, <laughs> Brahms The Boy too. <laughs> So Brahms the boy, too, wants to interview <laughs> Louie. 
Yeah, and like, I love that his first question is, so what do you do? Which is a normal question to ask someone, and usually they answer about their career. And his answer is, I'm a vampire. (laughs) This movie's not going to waste your fucking time on his premise. This movie has very little time to waste, vanishingly little time to waste, and yet. It's covering so much ground. (laughs) Brahms the Boy 2 plays along for a little bit, and then, to prove it, Louis decides he's going to flick a light switch really fast, which is somehow the thing that convinces him. Yeah, he, like, zips across the room to do a light switch thing. And so then he's like, oh, obviously this confirms everything I've ever heard about vampires in the 1990s, which at this point was informed by, like, Dracula. In the book, it's not so much the action of flicking the light switch on as it is that, like, in full illumination, the fact that Louis is not human becomes readily apparent immediately. But vampires being so unearthly, beautiful, and perfectly shaped that they are obviously not human is something that is conveyed much more easily in prose than it is on screen. I feel like there's a lot of this movie that's a lot more easily portrayed in prose than on screen. Which is why so much of it is narrated. He sits down and he's like, all right, let me tell you about my life story. It all started when... (laughs) And now we're back in 1791. We're back in 1791. Louis is talking about how his wife and child both just died during childbirth. Just so you know, he's straight. (laughs) Yeah, in the book, it wasn't his wife and child in the book. He wasn't married, but he had a brother and a sister and it was his brother's death. That led to his, you know, suicidal depression. But the thing is, is that the circumstances surrounding his brother's death are kind of like complicated and hard to explain. And you have to do a lot of build up to explain why it devastated Louis. So in this movie doesn't have that kind of f-ing time. <laughs> so it's like, yeah. So it just goes for the shorthand of. So it's like wife and child. <laughs> my wife died in childbirth, which, you know, you're on a medical movie. Oh, OK. I get why that might make you want to die. But, you know, he's. This dude's a plantation owner in Nolens. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. It's like, oh, oh, I'm so sad. No one has suffered as I have. Me, the man who owns people. <laughs> it is a bit difficult to take seriously. I cannot give this man, like, you just set me up to not consider this man with pretty much any sympathy for the rest of your movie. <laughs> He, uh, he goes to a bar where he promptly loses a game and a guy threatens to shoot him and he rips open his shirt dramatically to show off Brad Pitt's perfectly sculpted <laughs> chest and goes, then do it! Brad Pitt circa 1994. <laughs> Cannot do stress it! how Brad Pitt this is. Yeah, to be fair, you need this character to believably be someone that Lestat can look at and be like, I have to f*** this man right now. <laughs> <laughs> and he's like, do it! Shoot me then! And he doesn't. So Louis walks out with a hooker. He goes to get, you know, the things you do with a sex worker done. Yeah, he gets like a quarter of a blowjob, and then the sex worker's pimp shows up with a knife and is like, give me all your money. (laughs) And then both of them get got by an unseen figure that turns out to be Tom Cruise as the vampire Lestat. (laughs) Tom Cruise in a blonde wig. Tom Cruise in a surprisingly okayish blonde wig. I just have this written down as like, because I didn't know anybody's names yet, and I don't think they say anybody's names for a minute. He's just sexy nihilism vampire. <laughs> <laughs> it's not an inaccurate description for him throughout the entirety of the Vampire Chronicles, honestly. Mm. And he's like, would you also like to be a sexy nihilism vampire? I can make this happen. Let's go to your bedroom. I didn't come here to make friends. Well, that's bull. 
shit. That's exactly what I came here to do. Yeah, bites Louis on the neck, drops him in the Mississippi. Louis understandably gets a massive infection. <laughs> it's bedridden when Lestat comes by and goes, by the way, I can turn you into a vampire. You wanna? <laughs> Which is wild, though, because he definitely did was like, oh, I want to die. I want to die. And then he starts coughing. He's like, maybe I don't want to die. (laughs) But I'll be sad about it. Wandering around my beautiful large house with servants who are all people I own. (laughs) Uh, So Lestat's like, hey, maybe you should go watch the sunrise one last time because I I guarantee you you're going to miss it, bud. (laughs) So we have an entire scene where we get to gaze into Brad Pitt's eyes as he gazes at the sunrise. We get like a lovely narration about how Brad Pitt is doesn't really quite understand it, but he understands this kindness now. In hindsight, it was so sad to see the sunrise. <laughs> One time I was playing a vampire and her vampire mom was like, you might want to shave your legs or something before I do this. <laughs> And, you know, that feels a lot less. Look at the dawn one last time. Oh, do you like, do you basically just like set to, it's basically how you're bitten in Vampire. Does that just set you how you are? Yeah, it basically sets you how you are. (laughs) Yes. Speaking of a lack of romanticism, after Tom Cruise homoerotically bites Brad Pitt and feeds him some blood and uh, Brad Pitt starts writhing on the ground, transforming into a vampire, the part from the book that has been left out of this scene is that Louis is shitting himself the whole time. So he just... So we just can't poop anymore. Uh, yeah, uh, the whole thing, the whole thing, the Anne Rice, every time someone gets transformed into a vampire in every single book without fail, is talking about what it feels like to have one's heart slow and stop. And then it goes, BT dubs, the characters pissing and shitting themselves uncontrollably. BT dubs, that's how you die. <laughs> oh, okay. So it does the whole death thing of like, oh, your does. bowels all evacuate and yep. <laughs> Every single time. Hmm. In the graveyard, where all his family's buried, slash in mausoleums, because it's Nolans. Yep. (laughs) Okay. Well, then he stops shitting and farting (laughs) and wakes up as a sexy vampire. And then Tom Cruise is like, now drink some of my blood and look with your special eyes. And it turns out special vampire eyes make statues come alive briefly, I guess. (laughs) I don't understand what's up with this part. Yeah, the incredible, like, high of vampire perception is also one of those things you can't really convey in film, but only in prose. And they decide to do it in film by making the statues look at Louis a bunch. But just, like, just the one, just the lady in gray paint, and that's kind of the only time it comes up. I, there's just going to be a whole bunch of things in this movie that, like, just watching it without having read this book, I can tell there must have been a lot of internal monologues and slow, like, realization and, and character musings going on. Things that don't really work in movies if you don't have someone to talk to. Like, even when Henry Selleck made Coraline, that's why they made the character of Wyborn to give Coraline a friend to talk to out loud, because movies are talkies. What is this, a mog? Even the book itself, it's not an internal monologue from Louis. It's just a monologue. It's literally just a transcript of an interview. Every single chapter of the book has quote marks around it. Oh, God. And there's little asides where he stops talking and the boy jumps in with something. This must just be an interminable interview. I gotta say, like, I know that at some point you can just sit back and let the interviewee do all the work and just kind of zone out. But you think as an interviewer, he would want to, like, 
ask questions to say, point the narrative in a direction or have some kind of thing that he's trying to hear. And instead, it's like, why is he even in this room? He could have just set up a tape recorder at any point. Like, <laughs> I'm gonna go grab a boil real quick. You have fun. Keep talking to this machine. <laughs> right? I'm just gonna go nip out for a bite to eat. Yeah, gonna go get a bayonet. And by that, I mean, I'm gonna go eat a person. It's definitely like, you know, it's, by the time I got to the end of the book, I was like, this kid must have to piss so goddamn bad. Yeah. <laughs> He's been sitting there the whole time, listening to this guy talk for hours. Poor Brahms the boy, too. Okay, so like, <laughs> I'm just gonna ask this one now. Why is this structured as an interview? It seems like the frame narrative doesn't really do a whole lot. And again, it feels like if he was going to just get just deliver his entire life story in the span of a night, he could have just, again, set up a tape recorder on his own. He could buy those. Vampires seem to have infinite money. I'm going to defer to Kit, who just read the book recently. Yeah, honestly, like, that's just an artistic choice that Anne Rice made that we all have to live with. I don't know what <laughs> this, it being structured as a literal interview does for the story, aside from, like, give Louis an excuse to, like, expound at length about how much his life sucks. God! Get a blog! <laughs> There's a couple of moments where Brahms the boy, too, breaks in to ask a question or two or prompt, like, exposition about, like, how vampires work. But for the most part, it's just Louis talking for paragraphs and paragraphs and paragraphs. Gizmo, shut the f*** up! We're doing a piece to Camera. What was he waiting for? He could have written an autobiography at any point. <laughs> the story is that, like, they ran into each other at a bar and Brahms the boy, too, is a journalist who likes to interview people. Well, he's not a very good one! <laughs> <laughs> no, he's not. To be fair, like, it is very hard to keep up your end of an interview when Louis is just talking at you for that long. Yeah. For the record, the TV show actually does, like, have a lot more give and take with regards to the structure of the interview because the character of Daniel in that one is 70 years old and a veteran journalist, so he is able to do things like challenge Louis on whether the things he's saying are true and, like, play with the idea of perception and memory. But in this case, it's literally just, it's a frame narrative that lets Brad Pitt talk about stuff in voiceover in the movie and in the book. It's just an artistic decision that Anne Rice made because she was extraordinarily depressed. Did she come up with the title first? Oh my god, she probably did come up with the title first. It's possible she came up with the title first. Because Interview with a Vampire is a great title, hands down. It's a very good title. Also, I should point out now that Anne Rice wrote Interview with the Vampire while she was grieving that her six-year-old daughter had died of cancer. So there's like... <laughs> that would inform some context in this book. Yeah. Yeah. So if you're wondering why Louis is so goddamn depressed in this, it's because the person writing him was like, you can feel the grief dripping off the page in that book. Woof. Yeah. <laughs> okay. He's still a slave owner, though. <laughs> he does still own enslaved people, probably pick them up. I mean, he's right in the middle of the rum molasses enslaved people triangle. <laughs> yeah, he's just like one corner of the triangle trade. It's rough. Yeah. So, you know, don't feel too bad for him. <laughs> actually, though, speaking of Brahms the Boy 2, this is one part where the movie actually cuts back to him because he's like, okay, so let's go down the list of vampire things. And this part <laughs> really sticks in my craw because he's like, okay, so like, Crucifixes? No, that's silly. That's stupid. Why would you think that? What about stakes through the heart? Obviously not. Garlic? No, don't be stupid. Coffins? Coffins are real. <laughs> uh, 
Uh, yeah, I mean, the thing about coffins, we find out in later Vampire Chronicles books that you can just bury yourself in dirt and it works just as well. But the idea okay. of a coffin is just to be able to sleep somewhere where you're guaranteed not to get any sunlight. It's just, for me, it's like, it's the fact that you say no crucifixes, but yes, coffins. And I feel like those are two <laughs> parts of vampire lore that kind of go hand in hand. So it's weird to do one and not the other. And to even say like, all crucifixes are fine and not to have the caveat or say the side grade of like, if it, an object of faith or something or, or something presented to you by a non-believer, I don't know. I like it when vampires just start lighting on fire when, when they set foot inside a church. I think that's fun. <laughs> <laughs> uh, incidentally, uh, the novel Blind Sight by Peter Watts features like genetically resurrected vampires where crosses are the only thing that works on them because they have a cross-wired retina that causes grand mal seizures when they see intersecting right angles. So the thing that led to the extinction of vampires was the invention of Euclidean architecture. <laughs> wow. <laughs> okay, so don't take any of these guys to Four Corners National Park in the United States, huh? No, they will seize and die. <laughs> but incidentally, Blind Sight, really good book. Also, interestingly, in Vampire the Masquerade, the only time a cross would work would be if it was wielded by someone who had the merit true faith. Yeah, I was going to ask about this because I mentioned this to John McKenzie and he told me that like a lot of these like vampire things are stuff that like don't necessarily affect you when you're like a new vampire, but like yes, as it goes on. In Vampire the Requiem 2.0, as you get further away from humanity, you start gaining these weaknesses or banes to things. So, like, you might gain a bane to crosses, or you might gain a bane to... In one game we played, someone had a bane of salt. So somebody okay. put a circle of salt, so you couldn't cross it. Okay, okay, yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, no, I'm into that. So, in true faith just being like, would it have to be a crucifix, or would it have to be, like, any emblem of a religious faith? Technically, it's any emblem of religious faith, but we're talking about old school White Wolf that was like gotcha. in the early 90s. So they only mentioned Christianity, really. Okay. No, I like that. See, I like that. Shit. I like that it basically it's a caveat to the less humanity. The further you go from humanity, the more weird vampire shit affects you. That's good. Instead, Anne Rice just sort of picked and chose and was like, coffins, though. <laughs> yeah, Anne Rice's relationship with religion is interesting. Because she started out Christian, went hardcore atheist, and then went even more hardcore Catholic. She seesawed huh. throughout her life. Yeah, that, that's a, huh, high church. Atheism to high church. That's wild. Yeah. <laughs> There's also something else weird going on there. I think there was something where, like, she pulled back from hardcore Catholicism again when she was like, oh, wait, they have some things to say about queer people. Mm. Yeah, 2010 was about when she started to publicly veer away from Christianity again. Mm. Back to the gay vampires. Back to the gay vampires. Gay is in, gay is hot. I want some gay, gay it's gonna be. Who also just sort of drain tavern wenches together. Yes. <laughs> it's, don't worry about it. <laughs> don't worry about concocting elaborate rituals. It's a pleasure swing, you f nut, not a sex net. It's fine. Don't worry about it. It's cool. <laughs> At one point, Louis is like, oh, I won't kill her. And Lestat's like, oh, don't worry, I did already. Which, this is the first inkling of what is going to be the major problem with Louis throughout the first act of this movie. 
Yeah, he does not want to drink people. Like, <laughs> he didn't think about this before he became a vampire. <laughs> I guess maybe he thought that you could just, like, take a little off the top without doing the murder, without exsanguinating. I became a vampire to suck blood and to f*** forever. I mean, canonically, you can. It's called the little drink, and that is a bit gay. But yeah, Louis, come on, man. <laughs> He also probably should have maybe hung out a bit more with Lestat and determined that this dude just had the most rancid vibes <laughs> before chaining himself to this dude for all eternity. Because <laughs> uh, the vibes are rancid. Oh, Lestat's so terrible. I love him so much. He's just such an awful character. <laughs> Speaking of awful... They sit down to, I guess, quote unquote, dinner in Louis's house because Lestat has just fully moved in to his plantation estate. <laughs> yeah, he basically brought a U-Haul to the time that he was like fighting yeah. Louis. Yeah. Not only did he U-Haul so hard in the book, he brought his elderly father with him to he live there. He has a dad? <laughs> Lestat's been a vampire for, at this point, maybe 10 years. Only 10? Yeah, and after the revolution happened in France, Lestat's dad, who was the Marquis of something-something, fled to New Orleans. Lestat came to join him after an improbable series of adventures, and Lestat is now taking care of his elderly father and was like, hey, Louis, do you want to be a vampire? Also, I'm moving in and I'm bringing my dad. <laughs> is it Antonio Bandres, whose character I can't remember the name of now, is it his vampire who's like thousands of years old? Yeah, hundreds? It's Antonio Banderas' vampire daddy who's like a Roman who's 2,000 years old. Okay. Oh, for f***'s sake. Because I remember there's that guy in a book, and I can't remember who it is. Yeah, that's Marius, who is, uh, oh boy. <laughs> yeah, Lestat spends like a solid third of his own book looking for Marius and writing messages to him all over walls and then getting mentorship from Marius, and it's a whole thing. Wow. In the meantime, though, maybe that's something that Lestat might do in another story. But here he's making jokes. He's making double entendre vampire jokes because that's just who he is. He's yeah. like, oh, aren't you hungry, sir? And it's like, on the contrary, he could eat the whole colony. <laughs> <laughs> I'm hilarious. See, because, like, you think I'm doing a metaphor, but really it's about eating people. We're vampires. <laughs> I love how in a universe full of vampires who are very depressed about it, Lestat's just having a great time. <laughs> He's just an asshole that you have to hang out with. <laughs> this book posits, what if there was an asshole with rancid vibes that you were obligated to hang out with, even though the relationship had soured a long time ago? I did that a lot in my college years. Oh, God, there were definitely some of those incidents in my 20s. Uh, what if somebody's vibes were just the worst? What if in your relationship with someone you skipped straight past the honeymoon phase and onto the married for 30 years and mad about it phase? Yeah, but you're also informed by Catholicism, so you can't just break up or get a divorce. Nope, absolutely not. Out of the question. And if you try, he will baby trap you. <laughs> so that's cool. <laughs> Also, at some point during this dinner sequence, in order to, like, give him some blood so that he actually eats something, Tom Cruise squeezes a rat like a juice box <laughs> to pour some blood into a goblin. And be like, here, pretend it's wine. 
looked like a juice box. <laughs> uh, like, you know that juicer that squeezed bags of juice into a glass? Like, ah, oh, the juicero, the patented technology that I cannot live without. What is this? It's a juicero. I don't, I'm sorry, I don't know what that word means. What's it's a, a new juicero? Word. Okay, define it for me. Uh, juicero, the best juice ever. What comes out of the Juicero is so fresh that it shouldn't even be called juice. It should just be called, I don't know, squashed produce, because that's what it is. <laughs> yeah, he's, he Juicero's a rat into <laughs> a wine glass. <laughs> With the press and everything. <laughs> we also then cut to Brad Pitt's enslaved people who... I guess it implies that they're voodoo practitioners calling down Loa or something, but then it also shows them, like, sticking pins in voodoo dolls, which is not really part of that religion, so unclear. Yeah, it's, it's, it's just basically a whole lot of fake Disney stock footage of voodoo for, like, a solid five minutes of this movie. I guess it's intended to imply that they're like, hey... The guy who owns us is definitely not only a monster, but also we think he might be like undead or something. <laughs> yeah, not just a monster, but a supernatural monster. Because Louis has yeah. Louis's been eating all the livestock and Lestat's been eating all the people. So, you know, not a great time. Nope. And also somebody's eating people. <laughs> On top of all the ways our lives suck right now, someone's eating people. I just have a note here that says broody murmuring vampires, which could be at any part of the movie. So I don't remember That's... what happens between now and a fire. <laughs> Basically, it's Louis being sad for a while. Oh, okay, yeah. He decides he's going to try to eat a lady and he invites a terrible lady out, but then he ends up drinking her dog and Lestat gets mad and bites her. Yeah, they go to a party so we can expound on Lestat's hunting habits, which is like just establishing that he's bisexual, really. And then Lestat at one point is like, hey, Louis, go read that lady's mind, just to establish that Lestat can read minds and a bunch of other vampires can as well, because that will become relevant later. And then it turns out Louis can't. Which would technically make Lestat something that has odd specs. Which vampire thing is that? What's their deal? Auspex is a power normally known for, like, the Maquette have it, and, but technically the Toreador do not have it, or mm -hmm. the Deva, so that means his bloodline probably involves Auspex. Bloodline is when you're a clan, and then you have, like, you get more powerful as a vampire, uh -huh. and then you can go down this other path that gives you more power and ability, uh -huh. or, or it could mean that he just drinks somebody who had Auspex and he learned the power that way. Can you start making an elaborate red string chart for me? Yeah. <laughs> Thank you. Anyway, Lestat takes a look at this old lady and her young hot side piece and goes like, oh yeah, she got him to murder her husband so they could be together. And then they blamed a slave for it. Can you imagine what happened to the slave? Anyway, Lestat's whole point is, hey, let's eat evil people. If we, That will resolve your vampire eating disorder. Yeah, let's- Content warning for vampire eating disorder. Yeah, let's eat evil people, but not me, the guy who owns people. <laughs> I'm one of the good ones. I'm sad. So Lestat's like, I'll take the kid. You take the old lady. Louis tries to eat the old lady, entirely fails to do so and eats her poodles instead. And we're not talking about like hunting poodles. We're talking about like toy dogs with cute haircuts. Yeah, these are toy poodles with dumb haircuts. And she starts screaming. Lestat comes over and snaps her neck. They get into a big fight where Lestat just ends up laughing at the end of it because... This is a character trait of his, is that uncontrollable, hysterical laughter at the worst possible moment. And then Louis goes back to his house to sulk, as he does. Yeah, and then one of the house slaves is like, 
oh, master, we're so worried about you. Oh, gosh. It's just you just seem so sad and we're so worried about you because you own us. (laughs) You think owning people is a thing you can and should do. Uh, it's just a thing that you've accepted and never questioned. Also, we think you might be eating people. Or at the very least, your friend you're suspiciously close with is definitely eating people. Hey, your boyfriend with the rancid vibes is eating people. Are you going to do literally anything about it? Because at this point, it's starting to affect your production on your plantation. Oh, no. <laughs> While this lady, whose name is Yvette, who's played by Thandie Newton and does actually get like a for real credit in the opening sequence, despite the fact that she's in this movie for maybe five minutes, she goes to touch Louis and he proceeds to bite her (laughs) because he's been starving himself and the inevitable happens. That's when the enslaved people on the plantation revolt with torches. And then fires start in the house. Louis sets fire to his own house. Yeah, he's too sad about it. So he sets fire to his own house and then he walks out with Yvette in his arms, addresses all of the people that he owns and thinks it's okay. And it's like, well, the house is on fire. So I guess now you're all free to go. Louis, that requires paperwork. (laughs) Have fun trying to get from Louisiana to north of the Mason-Dixon. It's a trek. It's a bit of a hike. And then he sets his own house on fire, and then he's like, oh, I killed this girl. No, truly, I have lost my humanity. I'm going to go lay down to die. And then Tom Cruise breaks through a window to complain about it. (laughs) I love this scene so much. He's just throwing a fit. (laughs) He's like, why are you burning down everything we own? (laughs) Yeah. And he is like, we own it. Yeah, this is mine too now. Yeah. And Louis's like, you thought you could have it all. And the stats just like, shut up, Louis. <laughs> Drags his ass out of there. <laughs> I just love this terrible character so much. Eventually, like, Brad Pitt wakes back up and Tom Cruise is like, so, are you happy now? We're in a cemetery. <laughs> and he's like, no. I'm sad. Have you watched this movie yet? I'm sad about being a vampire. Lestat's like, we know, Louis. (laughs) We know, Louis. We promise. We've picked up on it. So they move into a flat in, like, New Orleans. (laughs) And Lestat is still basically just, like, killing mice and delivering them to Louis's door. Like, please eat something. Like a cat mom. So whenever the idea of, like, going to see movies in theaters is brought up, and the things that you can experience that way that you don't hear anywhere else is a story my friend Ben tells where he went to go see, and I believe it was Interview with a Vampire because something clicked for me in the scene. He wanted to go see it in a midnight showing or whatever. It was a full theater. And it gets to this scene in the flat where they brought over a couple of women. Yes. Who might be sex workers. Or at the very least, some very drunk ladies. One of them is credited as New Orleans whore, so yeah, they're sex workers. (laughs) Okay, well, they bring over a couple of sex workers, and at some point, Tom Cruise just clamps his entire mouth around this girl's boob and bites, and like, there's blood gushing from everything, and what my friend Ben recalls here is somebody saying out loud in the theater in, like, one of the Carolinas, like, damn, he's eating that girl's whole titty! (laughs) 
just spit off that girl's whole teddy. <laughs> oh, I think I'm going to think about that at least once a day yeah. for the rest of my life. That vampire just spit off her whole teddy. <laughs> and Ben, I'm probably mangling this story and it might not even be this, but you know, this is what I'm thinking about now. Tom Cruise bites off a girl's whole titty. They bring over a couple of sex workers. They get drunk, or more accurately, the girls get drunk, and then Lestat starts drinking their blood, finishes off one, and then turns to the other and says, your friend is no head for wine, which I do like his delivery on that line. I think that's fun. Tom Cruise is chewing the scenery here as much as he's chewing that titty. Yeah, like I said, he put his whole pussy into this role. He then proceeds to bite off that titty, and then as he pulls back, she realizes... (laughs) <laughs> she is bleeding from the titty and starts screaming, at which point Lestat is already draining some of her blood from her wrist into a wine glass for Louis. <laughs> because again, he's delivering dead mice to Louis's door. This whole scene, like not only is this like word for word from the book, this whole scene is just basically Lestat going way over the top, batting these mice around like a cat playing with them to try and shock Louis out of being sad, basically. <laughs> Yeah, he's like, why won't you eat this crying upset lady I just threw into a coffin and pulled out while she begged for death? I don't understand why you're having a problem with this. (laughs) And Louis is like, okay, I wasn't going to eat her before and I'm especially not going to do it now. At which point Lestat finishes her off. And Louis basically storms out into the night. Where the plague is happening. He storms out to be sad, and then he finds, like, people delivering a body cart out of, like, a plague-ridden quarter, being like, hey, don't go that way. So he goes that way. And he's like, I'm gonna go that way. <laughs> so he goes that way. Because he's a vampire, what's gonna fucking happen? <laughs> he eventually stumbles upon Kirsten Dunst. Uh, tiny baby Kirsten Dunst, who in the book would have been five, but they cast an older, like, 11 or 12-year-old actress because Neil Jordan didn't think he would get the kind of performance he needed out of a five-year-old. Yeah, that and, you know, the younger they are, the more restrictions you have on how many shoots they can do per day. Yeah, also that. And also, the interview with the Vampire TV show quickly ran into the problem of casting younger actors as characters who were supposed to be youthful forever. Yeah, you'll get that in long-form media. Yeah, whoopsie. She's supposed to look 14 forever. So she's like, oh, hello, random sir. My mommy is a corpse and my daddy is gone. How are you? Dad went out for scratchers and he never came back. Can I have a (laughs) hug? Uh, (laughs) Can you wake up my mommy, please? And Louie hugs her and then he's overcome with hunger and bites her and drains her dead. Lestat shows up like two seconds after he bites her and starts laughing hysterically because he's like, really, man? <laughs> and then proceeds to dance around with the dead mom for a bit, because which is, he also does in the book. He's just terrible. He's awful. He's just the worst. Rancid vibes. <laughs> just terrible. Just the Absolutely wor- awful. I can't imagine why Louis might be depressed all the time when he has to hang around this miserable f***. <laughs> I feel like that might be a contributing factor. (laughs) So Louis has a feeling about it and runs off. Then he ends up in the sewers, chewing on rats again. Like he follows a trail of rats to find him. Which Lestat actually like makes a sassy comment about it. As I have to find you, all I have to look for is a trail of dead rats, Louis. Come get out of the sewer. I have a present for you. It's like, hey, have you considered eating people like more than that? No? Rats only? Okay, I got you a prezi. Surprise! I made you an immortal 10-year-old girl. It's a present. They say I turned a baby into a vampire and left it in the Bronx. Who would do such a thing? Wouldn't want to be him. 
Uh, yeah. She has curly hair now. Yeah. Turns out Louie did not kill Claudia. She's only mostly dead, the little girl. Which is different from being all dead. Lucas, feel free to slot that one in. Mostly dead. He's slightly alive. And then Lestat goes through the whole thing of like, well, let's make her into a vampire instead. And Louis's like, are you nuts? And Lestat's like, yeah. And then he does it. And Kirsten Dunst wakes up and she's like, hooray, I can eat a servant and I have two dads now. <laughs> yep, that's right. Lestat just baby trapped Louis. He straight up says Louis was going to leave, but now he's not going to because he loves you. Of course, the hilarious thing about Lestat baby trapping Louis is that Louis wasn't going to leave and Lestat certainly wasn't going to leave. So the only person who ends up trapped is the baby. That's a cool metaphor for bad houses. <laughs> oh, these three are the worst. Yeah, they kind of are. Oh, they're so terrible. I love them so much. They're awful. <laughs> so they decide to move to a new house. And Claudia? Claudia. 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 Little Kirsten Dunn, she gets a neat little baby coffin for herself and gets to eat all the doll makers she wants. <laughs> They dress her up like a doll, too. Specifically, Lestat dresses her up like a doll. I'm going to be real. There's a little montage here with Claudia and their new life with her. This is honestly a sitcom that I would watch, which is <laughs> Claudia, the little murder goblin who looks like a doll, who like goes into a doll maker, walks out with some new dolls and a mouthful of blood, has some trouble with a stuffy piano teacher, eats him, and sometimes she has a bad dream and gets out of her little baby coffin to go sleep with Papa. <laughs> uh, yeah, and they passed like 30 years like that. <laughs> and of course, Claudia, the line here is the relentless pursuit of blood with all a child's demanding. Uh, Claudia's an absolute fucking monster. <laughs> it's awesome. Yeah, because being 10 years old does not really put you in an incredibly stable place for, you know, complex moral decisions. Nope. You're kind of a little id at that point. And it's never explicitly shown, but like by this point, Louis's just eating people. <laughs> He's completely discarded that whole moral quandary. Yeah, that tension point is gone. Bye bye. He's like, all right, fuck it. <laughs> At some point, we find out it's been 30 years, and then Claudia is like, hmm, hey, let's go check. Oh, hey, there's a naked lady changing. Hey, when am I going to get some of those? Never. Yeah, Claudia looks at this beautiful woman bathing herself and goes, I want to be her. And then realizes, hey, it's been 30 years and I haven't gone through any kind of puberty. Something's probably up with that because while she looks like she's like 10 or 11 at this point, she's got the mind of a 30 year old. <laughs> yeah, I feel like the Batman animated series iteration of Baby Doll took a lot of inspiration from this concept of this character. Of like, I am perpetually trapped in the body of a child. I will never be an adult woman. And that is kind of awful for me. That's me in there. The real me. There I am. But it's not really real, is it? Just made up and pretend like my family and my life and everything else. Why couldn't you just let me make believe? And then she also just sort of has a whole fit. It's like, stop giving me dolls. I swear to Christ. I'm like 43. 
Stop dressing me up like a doll. I'm not your toy. I'm not your child. I'm 43 years old. I'm stuck being three feet tall for the rest of my life. And also there's a dead body in my bed because I stole that lady and I'm now keeping her in my room like a doll. I can't even give myself a nice new haircut. I can't even give myself crisis bangs. <laughs> yeah, this scene is not from this book, but it's actually from the vampire Lestat. And the character who does it is Lestat's mom, Gabrielle who Gabrielle gets sick and Lestat turns her into a vampire and she immediately starts playing around with her gender. She had like before that point, she had referred to Lestat as the man in her. So she immediately starts wanting to dress like a guy. And at one point she cuts all of her hair off and then the next sunset she wakes up and she's brushing her hair out of her eyes and then she realizes it's completely regrown during the night and just starts screaming. So that's where this scene is, but they gave it to Claudia instead. Also going back to the make sure you shave thing because yeah. in Vampire the Masquerade and Requiem, each night you wake up however you died and you can shave it off, you can cut your hair, whatever, but it will be back by the next morning. That might be low-key one of the most horrific things that I could imagine about like being a vampire is to no longer have control over your body, to have completely ceded that control to whomever sired you in the first place. Yeah, you are just frozen in time forever. Also, Lossat's relationship with Gabrielle is fun, and by fun I mean weird, and by weird I mean they kiss on the mouth a whole bunch. Yeah. Uh, not in this movie, though. No, Gabrielle's not in this movie. She's in the woods right now. A normal place to be. She doesn't want to deal with people. She's the one who figured out that you can just bury yourself in dirt at sunrise and live. <laughs> I don't want to be in a coffin. I'm going to bury myself in the dirt and see if it works, and it did. Well, I mean, again, if... I had to hang out with someone whose vibes were completely rancid, almost putrescent. I would also bury myself in the woods instead of dealing with them on a regular basis. Oh, yeah. Lestat's like, everyone I've ever loved has left me. And I was like, have you tried sucking less? <laughs> Weird. It's almost like the common thread in all of your relationships crashing and burning is you. And also that cursed Egyptian amulet. Why do you have that? <laughs> Claudia's discovering the downside. She, again, like, and they do this really quickly. Like, it's not even that she can only cut her hair once a day here. She tries to cut her hair off for once and not have these baby doll curls. And then she, like, blinks and five seconds later, it's all back. And she's like, who did this to me? And Louis and Lestat point at each other, basically. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> dare you point at me? You, you were pointing first. Rude to point. You're being very rude. You're not even believing what Which I'm saying. Which one pointed first? Spider-Man pointed first. Obviously. You're pointing at me right now as you say that. You're Look pointing. at you. I'm Look just at pointing your at your pointing. Look at your finger right different now. different than normal you pointing. You haven't seen you're pointing until me I get through with you and then while you'll you're know. Lestat goes to one of the streets being sad again because that's just, honestly, you could throw a dart at any page in the screenplay and you would come up with Brad Pitt wandering the streets being sad. And so that's what happens here. Yeah. Yep. He takes Claudia to the house where her mom died and explains the whole deal. And Claudia's like, well, I hate you both. <laughs> and leaves. But then she comes back and is kind of horny at him. Yeah. So first of all, she comes back because she really does not have anywhere to go. She's a child. Despite the fact that she is like, you know, an adult by this point, psychologically, she's physically a child. She cannot live independently. She has nowhere to go. And yeah, her relationship with Louis starts to shift here. She sort of sees him as her soulmate and he sees her as his daughter and it's uh, in, in the earlier vampire books, the idea was that the vampires don't have sex because all their physical urges have been 
transmuted into the desire for human blood, but they still desire companionship. And as a result, like all of their relationships end up in this like weird blend of familial, romantic, platonic, like it's a tangled mess of whatever. And as a result, Claudia ends up being like weirdly horny towards Louis a lot of the time. Yeah, there's a reason psychologically that those different sorts of love are placed in different people in your life and you don't lump them all into same things because that's that's bad, actually. Yeah. So, you know, when you put like all of your desire for emotional intimacy on one person, they become your father, lover, best friend, brother, whatever. And it gets weird. That basically sums up every close relationship in the Vampire Chronicles is it gets weird. Yeah. And then because, you know, there are vanishingly few vampires for them to do this with. So then they decide to do that for just several hundreds of years. Yes. <laughs> it's cool. <laughs> This is also part of the reason why Lestat is f***ing like that. <laughs> yeah, speaking of which, this dude has decided to just start, like, moodily and almost violently playing the piano. And is like, you know what? You guys suck, actually. I should make more vampires. Then I'll finally find someone who won't suck. Yeah, that's right, Lestat. Have another baby. That'll fix it. <laughs> exactly. Claudia is also saying we should leave. And Louis is like, Lestat will never let us go. And Claudia's like, don't worry about that. I'll take care of that. Yeah, we could never get rid of him. And she's like, oh, can't we? <laughs> He's like, what? And she's like, hmm? Mm-hmm. <laughs> Because, you know, Claudia is actually the good character here who is interested in doing things and being proactive and not just wandering around the streets of the American South being sad. (laughs) She's like, okay, fine. I'm going to be like this forever. F*** you. So she goes out and gets a couple of very pretty boys. She gets them all nicely set up and makes them look like they're asleep. And she's like, hey. Supposedly she gave them booze and now they're drunk and passed out. They're not drunk and passed out. She's like, oh, oh, Lestat, let me just flatter you and manipulate you the same way you do me. But oh, I'm sorry. I was being absurd for feeling bitter about being 10 years old for the rest of eternity. (laughs) You're right. I was wrong to take it out on you. Let's be friends again. I got you some boys. I got you some boys. Go drink the boys. Go drink the boys. <laughs> uh, and up to this point, Lestat, while mentoring Claudia, say, hey, make sure to stop drinking their blood before the heart stops. Let the death take it down with you. The thing is that Lestat in the books has never once followed this rule. Like the first guy he kills, <laughs> he ignores that rule. He gets a little high off the death, but that's about it. Nothing bad happens. Yeah. So this is just a thing like drinking, quote unquote, dead blood is bad for you. This is a movie thing, mostly. Okay. Is that a white wolf thing at all, Mac? No, it, it, not really. No. Doesn't matter. You do. If you're drinking another vampire, you have to stop or you might drink their soul and then people can see it in your aura. But that's about it. You can just drink up the soul? Yeah. Yeah. You can diabolize them and, and just basically eat their soul. Yeah. And then you'll gain more power. Huh. That seems like a problem. But everyone can tell you did it. <laughs> that's the catch is if you, if you diabolize another vampire, every other vampire can look at you and know that you did that. Yeah. <laughs> Mm. It shows mm. black veins in your aura. Wow. Okay, so it's not just that Lestat is about to drink a corpse. Well, no, in the book it's that he's about to drink a corpse full of laudanum. Yeah. And poison. Yeah, that's the movie too. Yes. But she filled these dead boys with laudanum. 
And then as he's reeling from the dead blood slash laudanum, she comes along and slits his throat. Because again, she's the proactive character who actually goes out and does things instead of just being sad for several decades about it. And Lestat proceeds to bleed entirely too much, like to a degree that it's freaky. The implication in the book is that he's bleeding out all the blood he ever drunk in his life. And Louis's like, ah, what did you do? And Claudia's <laughs> like, I Dixie chicks him. <laughs> <laughs> My toxic relationship, my toxic codependent relationship. And she's like, guess who's your new toxic codependent relationship? Let's go, champ. Let's put him in the swamp. Swamp time. Perhaps you require it. Let's let the gators eat him up. You're welcome, idiot. (laughs) They put Lestat in the swamp. (laughs) And then they start preparing to go to Europe so that Louis can find other vampires and learn about vampires. Because he's like, surely they're not all the worst guy I've ever met forever. (laughs) (laughs) It's important. They're not actually all exclusively the worst guy he's ever met. It's just that Louis has like a bloodhound-like sense for sniffing out the craziest available. (laughs) (laughs) Louis is that friend in your group who never dates someone who's good. (laughs) No. He just has the worst taste in men, and he's always just so sad about it. He's sad about having the worst taste in men. And someone's like, have you ever tried dating someone who has good vibes? And he's like, don't even understand the question. (laughs) And he's like, Armand has good vibes. And everyone's like, no, he doesn't. No. He has like the opposite of good vibes. (laughs) Every time Armand gets bored with a friend group, he kills everyone in it. But as they're preparing to leave, Lestat shows back up and is like, you thought you could get rid of me? Or he's basically that one meme. He's like, bitch, I bet you thought that was the last time you saw me or whatever it is. (laughs) Surprise, bitch. Surprise, bitch. I bet you thought you'd seen the last of me. Okay, bye. And set everything on fire and leave. Yeah, they proceed to throw a lantern at Lestat, set him on fire, set the house on fire. Louis doesn't know how to move out of somewhere without burning it to the ground. <laughs> Literally. Like, Louis, you can just leave. This dude cannot leave a place until he has literally burned it to the ground. It's probably a metaphor for something to do with him, since mm. whatever he's got going on. <laughs> I know that usually when these sorts of things happen, it's lampooning the Great Chicago Fire, but I feel like there was like a big fire around this time in New Orleans. The French Quarter did burn down at least once. Yeah. So, you know, chalk one up to another toxic relationship. Uh, so they get onto the boat as the city is burning behind them and head off to europe we cut back quickly to brahms the boy who's like so did you find any he's like not really like there's we we went to a whole bunch of different countries didn't find any it's like not even in transylvania and he's like no no vampires remain in romania no vampires remain in romania The interesting thing about this is that there's this bit from the book that they essentially skip over here, which is a very brief, like, middle part, where they do go to Eastern Europe, and they do find vampires, but they're, like, mindless, like, zombie vampires that have to be, like, staked into their coffins and then then burned and dismembered. They do find vampires in Eastern Europe, but they don't find, like, sentient vampires in Eastern Europe. They just find, like... People who woke up in a coffin had to dig their way out. And by the time they got to the surface, there was just like, they were not capable of any kind of sentient thought by that point. They were just like mindless eaters. 
Hello, my nighttime brother. <laughs> me. Fucking thing just bit me. So, you know, the only vampires that I guess are reasonable vampires, quote unquote, are the ones that live in French speaking countries. Yeah, we're not going to examine that too closely right now, but Anne Rice has some stuff going on there. Hmm. We go to Paris, September 1870. I don't know why it's important that it's September. I mean, I remember the 21st night, but... It's just to place it, I guess. So Claudia finally gets to, like, get some tailored dresses that are actually in, like, adult women's styles. Which must be such a relief for her. You can tell from the costuming that, like, she's dressing like an adult. A very tiny adult, but she is dressing like an adult. Because she's something like, you know, a 50 to 60 year old woman by this point. I really like the costuming choices here. This is also where I just start to wonder, like, where's the money coming from? Are they just getting everything paid on credit? And they're just like, we're just going to gobble him up when he gets here, right? Yeah, of course. The book kind of covers the fact that Louise didn't burn down the plantation in the book. He just left and is continuing to derive an income from it, as I recall. Wow! He's continuing to profit from slave labor? Maybe he did burn it down because I remember he had to flee to the neighbor's house for some reason. Now I'm going to look this up. Hang on. He's still deriving some kind of income from the plantation, but he's not living there anymore. And I wonder if he did burn it down and then it just got rebuilt. That would be incredible. This <laughs> whole book funded by slave labor. It isn't the, directly the plantation, but while like Lestat was living with him at the plantation, Lestat was like, you should invest in a ton of real estate. So he's destroying- Oh, okay. Vampire real estate. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yes, he's profiting on vampire real estate, which not as bad as slave labor, but that does make him a landlord and therefore still a literal leech. So Yeah, you know, so he still basically owns people, but not on paper owns them, owns them, just threatens everything about their livelihood. Cool. He's an out of country landlord. Hooray. Great. Our hero, ladies and gentlemen. He's a vampire. He feeds off of people. And he's so sad about it. Don't you feel bad about how sad he is? <laughs> about being a slave owner landlord? He's so sad. He's just so sad, though. No one has suffered as much as he has suffered. <laughs> oh, God. Anyway, they still haven't been able to find any fucking vampires in Paris. But eventually, they meet Santiago, who's being a fucking mime. Yeah, they do some goddamn like, <laughs> yeah, they meet Santiago, Paris's most annoying vampire. They do some <laughs> Groucho Marx, what if we mirror each other and we're not sure if we're in a wall length mirror or not thing. But then he's like, oh, me to the theater and leads him to the theater. They do this in an alley and then Antonio Banderas shows up and it's like, hey, cut it out. It's got a pantomime. Antonio Banderas comes along and says, Santiago, knock it off. Hey, hey, baby. Hey, Louie. Hey, Louie. Hey, Louie. Hey. Hey, Louie. And Louie's like, I smell a bad boy who will ruin my life. <laughs> He's like, that's right. Also, I'm a theater gay. <laughs> Come to my theater. Remember my name. It's Armand. Bring your child. <laughs> Come see my shitty plays. I produce them myself. Everyone who has seen it says it is magnificent. It is an all vampire cast and it is just the most beautiful, eerie, poignant, important, important work. Now I've heard there's a lot of nudity and I mean a lot. And when I say a lot, I don't just mean a whiff of tip. I mean the full rack, full boobies, full boners, the full display. We're going to have so much fun. <laughs> Uh, and then he walks off. 
and uh, Claudia and Louis go to the theater of the vampires, which is vampires pretending to be humans, pretending to be vampires who kill people live on stage and nobody notices. I just feel like someone would notice. Uh, there's, of course, the one lady in the audience who's like, feed on me, I'm on. Okay, well, there's no accounting for the horny. <laughs> there's the horny lady in the audience who's like, take me, Mr. Vampire, I love you. And Santiago shouts, wait your turn, which is very good. <laughs> and then they do kill like an innocent woman on stage who's terrified to die. And Armand proceeds to use some like a weird mix of like just regular old like intimacy in a situation of mortal peril. And also some of the hypnotic powers he has to basically subdue this woman, eat her and then throw her to the rest of the vampires who also eat her. I just think that this woman's acting would be too good compared to how shitty everyone else on stage is. <laughs> and you can see in the audience that, like, some of them are a little uncomfortable with this, but then, like, the logic takes over and they're like, surely they wouldn't actually kill a woman on stage. This has got to be part of the show. I'm not going to think about this too hard. <laughs> but then they're as they're leaving, they're visibly uncomfortable. <laughs> Because, you know, France in 1870, they're fine. You know, there's not that much violence going on. <laughs> it's fine. It's fine. <laughs> uh, and then uh, Louis goes up, Louis and Claudia go up to talk to Armand, and Armand leads them down to the crypts that are inexplicably beneath the theater. This is just what Paris is like. Yeah, you know, you just got crypts on top of crypts. That's true. The whole of Paris is on top of a grip. I am going to just make sure everybody knows. I'm sorry, guys. The Crypt Keeper is not here. Oh. <laughs> there is no one here to call you boils and ghouls or make fun little jokes and japes. It's just Antonio Banderas in a very long-haired wig with a whole bunch of mooks. Damn you, Marcel. I told you they wanted violence. Not violins. Good help is so hard to find, isn't it, kiddies? A French friend of mine once told me that if you go into the catacombs without permission, that's a 250 euro fine, but they do have to catch you, which means it's not really a fine so much as going into the catacombs has a semi-optional 250 euro admission fee. <laughs> yeah, that's just basically paying for a really expensive tour that you get yourself. <laughs> also, good luck getting out if you don't have a map. Yeah. That would be a problem. Why they don't want you going down there. <laughs> There's already enough corpses down there. For the record, I have checked. And yes, Vampire LARP does happen in the catacombs. Oh, Wait. God, of course. So he's like, hello, come see my crypt and all of my cool friends. And like the way that this set is arranged, there's some very long steps that go down to where all the coffins are. But there's also a very tall landing up by where the door is. So at some point, like he's giving him a little tour and all of the other vampires from the theater, all the rest of this troupe stand in single file along the top of this layer looking down on him and I swear to God they're gonna start singing about doing the time warp again any second. <laughs> oh yeah, it's it's 100% Rocky Horror Picture Show up there. Yeah. That's the Transylvanians up there. So a few notes about Armand. Originally in the book, this character looked to be about like 17 years old and from the Ukraine. Hmm. Apparently Neil Jordan was a bit uncomfortable with having the character of Armand be that young for the sake of like with all the homoeroticism in the movie, he didn't want there to be like any stereotype reinforcing about oh. like you know gay men going after teenage boys or whatever but imagine Cher hanging out with a teenager 
Yeah, I like Antonio Banderas. I like him in this role. I do have to say that like Armand's whole deal becomes one million percent funnier if he is this angelic looking teenage boy. Yeah, because at some point he's like, uh, you know, why don't you ask me some questions about being a vampire and I'll just sort of moralize at you about the nature of good and evil and how sad it is to be a vampire. And also I'm 400 years old and you should just stop having feelings about things like, ugh. <laughs> but also maybe you have horny feelings. Would you like to have horny feelings? Because I still experience yeah. horny feelings. You should experience horny feelings. Hey, leave your daughter at yeah. home. Yeah. Louis, as mentioned, is connoisseur of only the craziest dick, immediately starts drawing like hearts in his notebook over Armand. <laughs> and Claudia's like, I can see what's happening. What? <laughs> he doesn't have a clue. Oh! <laughs> <laughs> the important thing to understand about Armand is that Lestat, fucking Lestat, everyone I've ever loved has left me Lestat, took one look at Armand and went, mm, no, I don't think so. <laughs> This is just a book about a dude who goes around forming the worst relationships with other people and wonders why he's not having a good time. <laughs> Listen, you do actually need to form connections, emotional connections with other people in order to maintain your sanity because that's how humans are wired. But vampires are like, well, I'm not human anymore. Why am I so sad? <laughs> I'm just going to have two relationships and throw everything into them, including all of my worst character traits. Why is this not doing anything for me? And they'll keep doing that for hundreds and hundreds of years. <laughs> and learn nothing. Nothing. Absolutely nothing. The first time that somebody even vaguely alluring crosses their path is like, I will die for you. <laughs> no, honey, maybe don't do that. He's like, I don't understand. I'm just sad. Fix me. <laughs> You can fix me. <laughs> Let's have a baby. <laughs> Vampires will live for hundreds of years and hang out with Tom Cruise in a wig and turn a little girl into an eternal child rather than go to therapy. <laughs> uh, let's be real. If Louis went to therapy, and especially if Louis and Lestat went to like relationship counseling, it would not be effective for them at all. Their main goal from that point forward would be suicide baiting the therapist. Like Therapy would not work on these people. <laughs> if they went to therapy, the therapist would say, you guys should break up like 500 years ago. And they'd be like, what? Either that or stay together and never inflict what you've got going on on literally anyone else. <laughs> Maybe you should take some time for yourself. Find out what you want. But I'm sad. Yes. This is to not do that anymore. <laughs> and then they'd eat the therapist. And then they'd eat the therapist and play some piano about it. There's still life in the old lady yet! True <laughs> <laughs> answer to this is one time in a game where I played a mage therapist to a vampire tried to eat. Oh, yeah? And her response was, do you want to die? And he said, no. And she goes, great. Now let's keep talking. <laughs> I can summon sunlight, baby. Uh, see, yeah, see, that's the trick. You got to get a supernatural therapist if you're going to start working theory issues as a sad vampire. They decide to start going to the theater a lot. They go to see more stupid plays. Also, as Louis is leaving for the first time, he thinks to himself, oh, I have wronged Lestat. I've hated him for the wrong reasons. And unfortunately, the vampires here can like read minds. Oh, yeah, that's right. 
And Santiago's like, Lestat? Who's Lestat? Let's ignore the fact that I 100% know who Lestat is because our boss never ever shuts the fuck up about how bad he wants Lestat's dick. And then points out, hey, among us, there's like one big crime that you never ever do, and that's kill another vampire. And Louis's like, cool. And then they leave. <laughs> Great. Good to know. Not relevant to me, though. <laughs> so so when he says he hated Lestat for all the wrong reasons, what reasons were those that were wrong to, to hate this dude? In the book, his reasons for hating Lestat is like, oh, Lestat is withholding information from me about being a vampire, or he just doesn't know anything useful. Either of those reasons is why I hate him. And then Armand is like, yeah, none of us know anything because the universe is terrifying. And Louis is like, oh. A, I 100% believe you, Armand, for whatever reason. I have terrible taste in men. And B, oh, it's not that Lestat was withholding information from me. It's because nobody knows anything. I mean, I'm pretty sure he also hated Lestat because the guy was just the, the most rancid person around. Yeah, but Louis likes that in dudes. Hmm. A metaphor for adulthood. None of us know what we're doing. But also stop hanging around with people with rancid vibes. Yeah. Figure out that if you're attracted to somebody, just go the other way. Yeah. Yeah. It turns out that among vampires, the vibes are near universally rancid. Like, Marius is pretty normal. Gabrielle is pretty normal. But, like, Louis represents the sanest of vampire cats in the Vampire Chronicles, usually. <laughs> and then, of course, Armand is just off the scale. You know, the thing is that, like... Armand in the movie just doesn't really strike me as being, like, the worst. He's just kind of... He's got bad vibes, but I don't know if there is on-the-screen rancid. Not on-the-screen rancid, but, you know, he did orchestrate the death of Louis' daughter so he could have the guy all to himself. Yeah. <laughs> Though I'm not even sure it's totally clear that he orchestrated that on the screen or if he is culpable, but also like, oh, no, I just couldn't stop them. <laughs> I think the movie tries to leave that slightly more ambiguous. It does. Yeah, the book does not. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, so speaking of Claudia, actually, Antonio Banderas is like, hey, buddy, so I see you have a 10-year-old immortal vampire girl. That seems like that's bad. They can't take care of themselves. We generally don't do that. <laughs> Because then they're like 10 years old forever and, you know, and then, and then you're kind of like stuck like with like some 10 year old parts of you and some brain parts of you that are like old and it seems like a bad time and they tend to break pretty bad. Like we don't usually do that. Anyway, do you want to talk about how sad it is to be vampires? <laughs> it's really sad. Talk to me about how sad it is. Are you sad? Yeah. Because I'm sad. Let me just disrobe and take my shirt off and we can talk about how sad it is. Let's cuddle and talk about how sad it is. Hey, baby. My shirt's chafing me. Mind if I take it off? Uh, and then like, oh, Brad Pitt. Oh, Brad Pitt, you're just so cool because you're sadder than any other vampire. You're the saddest vampire of all because you feel bad about killing people. That's so amazing and incredibly hot. I don't believe it. Now my pants are chafing. <laughs> and Louis is just like, yeah, I knew that Armand would never withhold information from me. Teaching would pass from him through to me like a sheet of glass. I was like, oh boy, are you so, so wrong about everything you just said, Louis. <laughs> he really just makes a lot of assumptions about the first guy that he's met that isn't Lestat. Yeah, the first guy he's met who isn't his big ex. And he's like, I'm ready to make this mistake again. <laughs> This is slightly different from the toxic relationship I just got out of, so surely it won't be toxic in a different way. <laughs> well, speaking of my toxic relationships, 
my daughter wants me to make her a mom. <laughs> yeah, my daughter wants a mom. She's like, hey, hey, I went out and I found a new mom. You should make her a mom for me, an immortal mom. Please, Louis, please. please. Also, she's going to kind of be my girlfriend. Also kind of my sister. Companion, lover, mom. None of us have learned anything. What if I just lumped all of my needs for companionship and a relationship into one person? Louis resists, but then Louis's like, you know what? I understand. <laughs> also, she's got a dead daughter, so that's... That's fine. That's absolutely fine. It's perfect. So, like, I'm going to be her new dead daughter. That won't make this relationship weird at all. No. Listen, I was going to put all of my relationship needs into you, but you seem like you really want to hang out with Armand, so... And Louis's like, I guess... But I'm gonna be so sad about it. I'm going to be so sad about it, and it's going to ruin my humanity, but I guess. I'll do it for you. <laughs> uh, so, and of course, our next shot after he bites Madeline on the neck is Madeline dying on the floor and presumably shitting herself. We don't see it. And then he just lies out on the patio, on the balcony, being like, oh, I'm just so sad. You've killed the last part of me that was human. Buddy, you've been a vampire for a while. And slave owner and a landlord. And now I'm just going to feel sad about it. Now, in the book, Madeline gets a little more time as a vampire, like a couple of weeks where she proceeds to make Claudia, like, basically doll furniture, like all sorts of adult furniture, but sized for her to make her feel more like an adult. In this instance, however, Madeline is barely turned for five minutes. Yeah, whenever Santiago and the theater squad burst in. <laughs> yeah, the whole troop. <laughs> And they're all like, oh, we're going to take all of you and burn you alive. Let's box up Brad Pitt. And Brad Pitt can stay alive because Armand wants to f*** him. We're going to throw him in a box and 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 and, th and block up the box. We're going to throw you in a coffin, lock the coffin, wall it up in a wall. And there's a lot of archways in this hallway. So this have probably done that before. And we're just going to leave you there while we uh, incinerate your daughter. I'll turn him into a vampire, a harmless little vampire, and I'll put that vampire in a box, and I'll put that box in a bigger box, and then I'll mail that box to myself and my sepulcher, and when it arrives, <laughs> I'll smash it with my dick. It's brilliant, 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 I tell you. Genius, I tell you. <laughs> <laughs> uh, an interesting thing about the book is that, like, in the book's version of this scene, Lestat is here. <laughs> What? Lestat is here, and he testifies that Claudia was the one who attempted to kill him, which kind of softens the whole kill our own kind thing. But Claudia still goes down. Testifies? They put them on trial? Yeah, there's a whole, like, kangaroo court thing where Lestat points the finger at Claudia and says, oh, she tried to kill me. Louis, Louis, come away with me quickly before these vampires decide to blame you as well. And the thing that happened behind the scenes here that we found out about in the vampire Lestat is that Lestat comes to Paris. He knew Armand of old, basically like destroyed Armand's last coven by facts and logicking them to death. Armand threw all of his old friends into a fire, then went to Lestat and said, please, please, I want to suck your dick so bad. Lestat was like, no thanks, but here, run this theater of the vampires that my ex-boyfriend runs. And then Armand killed the ex-boyfriend and then what? before that he did cut off his hands. <laughs> and then what? Lestat shows up to Armand and is like, hey, can I 
have some blood as a normal vampire favor to help me heal from all this damage that came from, you know, getting my throat slit and dumped into a swamp and then set on fire. What? And Armand was like, uh, d- that depends. Do you still want to f*** me? And Lestat was like, I never wanted to f*** you. And Armand was like, f*** you then. Not only am I not going to help you, I'm what? going to keep you in a room and barely feed you, make you testify against your own daughter, kill your what? daughter, and steal your husband because he's a normal guy with normal reactions. <laughs> yeah. Oh, and I'm also going to push you off this tower. <laughs> Yeah, movie Armand is just kind of here with long hair and is also kind of sad. And he's like, I don't know. These guys just put on plays. I guess I'll just participate in it. But it's not really my bag. I'm sensitive. That's not Book Armand's deal at all. No, that's a different character. Yeah. Armand and Lestat, the vibe is very much like Armand following Lestat around saying, please, please, I want to suck your dick so bad. Please let me suck your dick. And Lestat is like, I feel like I'm being bullied right now. Is this bullying? And it's not not bullying. Yeah, that's not in this movie at all. <laughs> nope. <laughs> no, that's not in this movie in the slightest. Not even a subtext around that. No, nothing. <laughs> it's nothing. Antonio Banderas is just like perfect, learned, 400-year-old sad vampire who really wants Brad Pitt. But like, yeah. Yeah, he's ambiguously blameless. Yeah. Guess this is why I say it's funnier that Armand is like canonically like this angelic looking the 17 year old because all of that is so much funnier. <laughs> yeah, that really makes some incredibly uncomfortable assertions about 90s gay men, assertions about gay men in the 90s all being pedophiles. Yeah. Yeah, you can see why they couldn't really do that in the movie. No, not in the slightest. That's mm, distasteful to start with. Okay, well, what happens in the movie, though? (laughs) Like, setting all of that aside, because that's what the movie did as well. The movie also set all of that aside. Yeah, the movie was just like, we're not going to deal with any of that right now. We don't know if we're getting a sequel. They... Toss him in a coffin, brick it up. They toss Claudia and her new mom in a well with a grate on top. So they'll be stuck in there and see the sunlight, which is interesting because we never really like we talked about a whole bunch of like vampire tropes that may or may not work for these guys. And we see them hanging around at nighttime. But I don't think we ever like have in the movie the threat of what sunlight will do to them. Not until this point. No, the closest we get is uh, Lestat saying, hey, watch your last sunrise. Yeah. Yeah. Otherwise, it just seems like you just fall asleep. You just only wake up at night. It doesn't say anything about like, if you actually go out in the sunlight, bad things might happen. Also, I looked at this and I was like, oh, it's like from the end of the first season of What We Do in the Shadows. Okay. Yeah, that's that's what they got it from. That was the joke. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. I understand that now. It's like, oh, I see what they were referencing. That's fun. Am I devious? Yes, I think I am. I was partially expecting Colin Robinson to show up with an umbrella this time around. Right. Hey, dudes. It's me, Colin Robinson, your roommate. Do you not want me to say it? I'll go. No! (laughs) So finally, Antonio goes... uh, We have cut to Antonio Baderas here briefly, closing the door and uh, just sort of listening in his little sad vampire bedroom while Louis is being bricked up and being like, Hey, hey, Armand, can you maybe not let this happen? Armand? buddy. Armand. Armand. And Armand is sat against a wall. Yeah. 
So now that the hubbub has died down, he goes to unbrick Louie and he's like, okay, it's definitely over. I wouldn't go check on Claudia. (laughs) You definitely need to leave right now. (laughs) You should probably not go check on Claudia. And he's like, I'm going to go check on Claudia. (laughs) So he goes and checks on Claudia and immediately throws himself against the wall, covering his eyes because Claudia is a pile of ash. So apparently for this, it is like two bodies who are completely like it is Claudia and her mom wife who are like curled up against each other. But they are corpses in the same way that like you see bodies in Pompeii. Although apparently they studied the way that corpses immolated in Hiroshima. For this, which... Woof. Great. (laughs) Don't know about using that reference for your sad vampire movie. Sad white vampire movie. Sad white vampire movie in France. Uh, In the book, like, Madeline looks like a charred human body, but Claudia, who is the older vampire, is literally just a pile of ash in a yellow dress. Uh, That feels like that would have been a little better, honestly. Maybe not as visually striking, but, um, hmm. Yeah, I mean, I gotta say, in in terms of, like, visuals, having, like, the two bodies clutching each other both burned to a crisp is something. Yeah, it is. It's very effective. Yeah, very effective. It is very visually striking. It's a good shot. Don't know that it should have gone that way, though, with those references. Uh, anyway, he's sad about it, wouldn't you know? I do love the reaction of the theater of the vampires here, because it's just basically all the popular kids standing off to one side going, Oh, you sad because your girl died? You sad because we killed your daughter? Baby. <laughs> Oh, and they're like, oh, look at that. The sad vampire is sad. Wah, wah, wah. And Armand is like, don't engage. Don't get into an argument with these people. You gotta go. You really gotta go. So he says, fine, I'll go. I'll come back a little later, though. Fine, I'll go. But you have to know that I can't leave anywhere without burning it to the ground. (laughs) (laughs) We got a rule of three this shit. Uh, Anywhere I leave permanently has to burn or else I can't leave. It's just a thing. <laughs> Time to do the old gay Paris flame and free. <laughs> no, gay Paris flame and flee. There we go. Uh, Louis stumps off back to Nolens. He gets ready to go back to Nolens, but first he decides he's going to set the mausoleum on fire. Oh, just the whole, he's just dumping, like, presumably whole whale crypt. oil all over the place uh, and then sets it on fire. And then as the vampires are coming out of the coffins, he's swinging a scythe to take their heads off. <laughs> just- because, like, in the plays, there's usually someone portraying death, so they've got the whole ass scythe. Yep. It was a smaller size in the book. They decided to go full size here. And just, you know, this is just Louie having his hot girl summer, I guess, as he chops heads off left and right. He gets outside and like, oh, no, it's daytime, but it's also foggy. So it might be fine. We haven't really established exactly how we deal with like sun versus UV light or direct sunlight or whatever. Don't don't worry about it. Antonio Banderas is here with a hearse. Armand is here. Yeah. The kid leans over and opens the door for him and lets him jump in. Did we cover the kid that Louis just ate a little bit in the the mausoleum? Because he was there. No, it's not really that important. 
It's not really that important. He's just a child that gets snacked on and he's driving the carriage. And Antonio pulls him in and then they go like talk somewhere about how they're sad about being vampires and how- They are actually walking through the Louvre in this scene. Oh, okay. It's in the book they explicitly establish. Louis Spitzley says, I've never been in the Louvre. And Armand is like, oh, yeah, I can get you and we're vampires. Nothing f***ing matters. But it's just kind of implied here. By the fact that they're in the fucking Louvre. I don't know. They're somewhere and they're talking about being sad about being vampires. Again, I could throw a dart at the screenplay. <laughs> Specifically, what they're covering here is that Armand is like, hey, I know you're sad, but I can teach you to live without regret if you come along and be my boyfriend. And Louis is like, no, I don't think I want to do either of those things. I want to be a sad vampire. I'm going to keep being sad. I'm almost going to kiss you, but I'm going to just get really close to you and whisper about how sad I am instead before leaving. It's basically sex when it comes to vampires. (laughs) In the book, they do actually spend like a couple of decades traveling together until they get back to New Orleans, at which point Armand basically takes one look at Louis, realizes that Louis is completely checked out and is like, hey, do you need anything else from me? And Louis is like, no. And Armand is like, cool. And then just leaves. Yeah, in the movie, there's like a little bit of a narration thing about how like the passion between them had cooled or something. And it's just it wasn't what it was. They drifted apart, which is actually one of the better ways for one of Louis's relationships to end. (laughs) Yeah, in terms of not burning down. No, they did burn down the theater of the vampires. That was more like the start of the relationship, or at least the end of act one. Yeah, this is the end of the relationship. Not necessarily the end of the vampire theater. <laughs> it's just like, yeah, we just drifted apart and we realized we're just different people. As opposed to my daughter girlfriend poisoned him, drugged him, and threw him into the swamp. Oh, and slit his throat. Don't forget that part. That's a very important part. And then he came back and we lit him on fire. And then he came back and we lit him on fire. And then he told a bunch of other vampires that she had kind of sort of not really killed him and they threw her out into the sunlight and then his ex-boyfriend pushed him off a tower so he decides to go home to Nolans and he's like hmm but first I'm gonna go wander America for a while and watch movies <laughs> yeah he gets to watch sunrises for the first time first in black and white and then in color and he actually goes to see the superman movie from the 70s yeah he goes to watch nosferatu he watches gone with the wind he goes to see superman and then uh all of which owned by warner brothers would you believe it warner brothers wanting to talk to you about how great movies are <laughs> and then we come to Nolan's 1988, where he has just walked out of Tequila Sunrise, and he's like, hmm, I smell a familiar bitch. (laughs) Uh. So he finds his house, I guess. I think this is his house. Yeah, this ruined- It's a house. Ruined leftover house. So he finds a house. With dead cats all over the place. And rats. It's almost like there's some sort of dramatic mirroring here of following the trail of dead rats. Yeah, Lissette's still f***ed up (laughs) from getting his throat slit poisoned, dumped in a swamp, and set on fire. (laughs) Tom Cruise is here, and he's in a lot of makeup. And to his credit, he may be super duper messed up, but he does do a dramatic chair spin. Mm -hmm. Because you can't keep a good vamp down. Nope. He wasn't even entirely sure that was Louis. He's done that to like three mailmen already. (laughs) It's like, so... Louie, you found me. (coughs) Please feed me another rat. It's like, oh, so you came back, huh? You just walked in from outer space? 
come crawling back to me, have you? <laughs> yeah, me, the juiciest meat. I cannot stress <laughs> enough just how much a shriveled raisin covered in blood he looks like right now. He looks so terrible. He looks awful. <laughs> and he's screaming every time a helicopter flies overhead because it's too bright and too loud. He's having a bad time in the 80s, you guys. Yeah, Brad Pitt is like, helicopters are normal now. That's like, that's a flashlight, man. That's not the sun. This is the reoccurring theme of the movie about very few vampires having the stamina for immortality because the world changes too much and they don't. Anyway, why was a helicopter throwing a searchlight directly into his house from, like, right above it? Well, he did kill, like, three male guys. Uh, <laughs> he got too embarrassed after they turned out to not be Louie. <laughs> <laughs> so Brad Pitt is just like, hmm. Okay, bye. <laughs> yeah, I'm not gonna make this mistake again. For once I've learned something, goodbye. <laughs> and then he does get back together with Lestat after Lestat becomes a rock star. Actually, according to the vampire Lestat, this scene didn't happen at all. Louis made it up. Hmm. Yeah, well, according to the movie lore, this is apparently what actually happens. Yes, we have no reason to doubt Louis' recollection. And also the vampire Lestat was written like 10 years after the interview with the vampire. And Anne Rice was kind of soft rebooting the whole deal. Yeah. So instead, we come back to, I mean, we're at the modern day. There's not that much to catch up. Hey, remember Brahms the boy? Brahms the boy. <laughs> Brahms the boy 2 was in here. Yeah. And oh boy, is he horny. Louis like, okay, I'm done. And Brahms the boy 2 is like, hey, you can't be done. That can't be the end of the story. It started with you being sad and it ended with <laughs> you being sad. It's almost though you experienced no emotional development throughout this movie. It's almost like that's the point of being a vampire is that you're frozen in one place for the rest of your life. And he's like, I don't know, something happened to Tom Cruise, I guess. But mostly I'm just sad about Kirsten Dunst. I'm, I'm just sad about being a vampire. And Brahms the Boy 2 is like, you know what? I bet I could do it better. <laughs> you should make me a vampire. I know what would fix you. <laughs> I bet if you make me a vampire, I won't be sad. And I can fix you. Give me superpowers. Please. So Louis attacks him and is like, no, your vibes aren't rancid enough. <laughs> You're pretty close, but not quite. Like, you've learned nothing about my story about being sad. <laughs> this whole interview slash movie was pointless. Uh, so he proceeds to scare off Brahms the Boy 2 by saying, do you like this being food for the immortals? In the book, he does kind of bite him. And then when Brahms the Boy 2 says, am I going to die? Louis says, I don't know, and leaves, which I kind of like as the vibe, but this is good too, where he, <laughs> Brahms the Boy 2, runs off with all of his tape, gets into his car, drives off, feeds the first tape in, and we have to listen to Louis start whining again from the start. <laughs> yeah, and he's like, we ostensibly assume that he is checking to make sure that everything recorded, which is funny because you think in all the tapes that he used tonight, he would have checked at some point, because <laughs> tapes don't hold that much audio. He's been switching tapes multiple times in the night. Yeah, and so he's like, oh good, this tape works. Here's the start of the movie again. And then Tom Cruise pops up <laughs> from his car and he's like, Surprise, bitch. I bet you thought you'd seen the last of me. Oh, that whiny little shit. <laughs> he pops up and says, I assume I need no introduction, and then bites Brahms the boy too. While he's driving, then pushes him over, takes the wheel of this convertible driving across the Golden Gate Bridge, and he's like, holy shit, this dude is such a whiner. Why don't we listen to Sympathy for the Devil instead? <laughs> but covered by Guns N' Roses. And he does a little, like, callback to the line that he gave Louis when he was about to turn him, which is like, I'm going to give you the choice I never got. Otherwise, you'll just die. 
<laughs> and then he's just like, he all but puts on some fucking sunglasses as dawn starts to rise and like the credits start rolling. It's like, please allow me to introduce myself. The last like 30 seconds to one minute of this movie is the most Anne Rice <laughs> in a very Anne Rice movie that this movie has ever been. <laughs> the last 30 seconds of this movie kind of rules, actually, if I hadn't just sat through the rest of the movie. <laughs> It's like suddenly Lestat, the cartoon character, shows up to bite a dude and then drive a convertible into the sunrise. What the hell? Where has that been? Yeah, Lestat's off to go become a fucking rock star, which he does in the books. Seriously? He starts a rock band? <laughs> yeah, he becomes a rock star, like an 80s rock star. With a tight leopard print pants and everything? Oh, God, yeah. Like, he dresses up in, like, goofy van- He and his whole band dress up in goofy vampire costumes on stage. And then his rock music accidentally awakens Akasha, the progenitor of the entire vampire race. What? Who decides that she's in love with him, but wants to kill every other vampire on Earth and enslave the Earth. What is it with Lestat that makes people want to be with him? His vibes are the worst. <laughs> Something just deeply alluring about how rancid his vibes are. And Rice, what is with you? She was so in love with the character of Lestat. The Vampire Chronicles from this point forward are almost exclusively about Lestat. Good lord. Like, I mean, he works kind of as, like, a character to bounce off of, but, like, he's kind of... I, I cannot imagine spending more time with this character than I strictly have to. <laughs> oh, also he and Louie get back together. <laughs> Louie! <laughs> Go to therapy! <laughs> Learn how to love yourself, my guy! <laughs> you deserve that any- literally anyone deserves better than to be in an on-again, off-again relationship with Lestat. I don't care how Tom Cruise in a wig he is. <laughs> this dude is wacky, is lol so random, holds up sport, kills your mailman. <laughs> this dude is a fucking joker. He's just terrible. I love how terrible he is. He's just the joker. Oh... <laughs> uh... This dude will look you in the eye and ask, why so serious? <laughs> this dude will tattoo the word disturbed and cursive across his forehead. This dude will method act at you. <laughs> the worst. Just the worst. I love him so. He's terrible. <laughs> we finally reached the end of this movie. <laughs> Kit, you want to tie this into your fact? Here's the thing. I don't think this movie would be nearly as fun if Louis and Lestat worked out their issues in couples therapy. <laughs> Just don't. The really fun part of this movie is watching them try to kill each other, baby trap each other, and get divorced over and over again. That's kind of the point. The point is to watch Louis trip and fall from one toxic dick onto a different toxic dick. <laughs> It's just, these aren't real people. They're fictional characters. And as a result, it's it's sort of like, I heard, I was talking to someone once who was talking about something going on in their Vampire the Masquerade thing and saying, well, how do we resolve this emotional issue with conflicting loyalties? And I was like, well, you're playing vampire, so you can do it in the most overdramatic and unreasonable way possible because that's the fun of vampire. And this person was like, well, I don't really like toxic relationships in fiction. And I was like, well, you're playing the toxic relationships game. I don't know what to tell you. 
they're vampires. They're the toxic relationships genre. That's the fun of it. Mac, how does your white wolf experience come into play in this one? It's pretty similar, though I will say there's a lot less hijinks than in any vampire game I've played. Needs more hijinks. Yes. You're right. This movie does need a lot more hijinks. Because, you know, players, they always do the most ridiculous things. Mm. While Louie does, like, burning things to the ground, I feel like my players would have done it by, like, you know, setting off a bunch of fireworks and then cackling madly and, like, making love to a clown or something. (laughs) Didn't get any of that. I feel like as we progress into the Vampire Chronicles and we have Lestat becomes a rock star, spills vampire secrets to the entire human race. Vampires try to kill him at his own rock show and he gets rescued by the vampire queen from ancient Egypt who then falls in love with him. (laughs) I feel like that's where the tabletop hijinks start to factor in more. That does sound a bit more reasonable to me, yeah. I think we're coming around to our final facts. Mac, what's your final fact? My final fact? Honestly, I don't want to watch a movie about a Toreador. <laughs> Give me a movie about a Nosferatu, but maybe not the actual movie Nosferatu. I like what? Yeah, you mean the movie Nosferatu? Yeah, like it's the movie Nosferatu. <laughs> but you know, I like, a, what's it called? The shadow one. The one where they made it about the movie Nosferatu. Oh, yeah. That one was good. But there was like a real Nosferatu in it. There was like a real Nosferatu. And it was just a little, it was like a fun romp. I like that one. Give me a Nosferatu film that's not Nosferatu. I don't know how that was a fact, but it's a fact in my book. Ah, that works. Also, Baby McKenzie really loved this movie. (laughs) (laughs) Am I shocked? No. (laughs) Annie, what's your final fact? Being able to write in one medium doesn't mean dick about being able to write successfully (laughs) in another medium. And that (laughs) what a book needs is very different from what a movie needs, where everything needs to actually be on the screen and not necessarily on the page, which is why you're sad all the time. (laughs) It's so sad to be a vampire. (laughs) Kit, what's your final fact? If you as an actor want to level up in terms of your ability to just portray the most deranged, awful character possible, you should consider playing Lestat. (laughs) Just go around looking for an interview with a vampire movie. Yeah, or like a play or where there's like an interview with the vampire play that you can probably get yourself cast in because this role awakens things in people. (laughs) Okay, I think that is going to do it for us here today. This was originally going to be our November episode. (laughs) Anne Rice tried to kill us a few times. So it's coming out in the holidays. Happy holidays, everybody. We got you some sad vampires. Yeah, Yeah. I had COVID (laughs) and then some other stuff happened. Yeah. Fun times. Fun times. It's just the ghost of Anne Rice descending upon Mackenzie's house specifically to try to stop this episode from happening. Yeah, this got delayed like two or three times. She knew how I flipped off Anne McCaffrey's rules and was like, you're going to do it to me too. (laughs) She's dead. She can't sue you now. So I believe, Mackenzie, it's your pick for next time. Yes. It was going to be our holiday episode, right? Yeah, it's going to be our holiday episode, (laughs) but now it's going to be our January episode. Because, you know, f*** it. And it's going to be every Hallmark movie. What makes a plot relaxing? (laughs) So we're kind of just swinging wildly from one extreme to the other here, huh? Yeah, we're going to talk about this, but I think we're going to try and structure this like a Romeo and Juliet episode, because all Hallmark Christmas movies are the same movie. <laughs> so we should all watch a different yeah, one. Absolutely. Yeah, and, you know, we'll be able to just sort of layer all the plot beats onto each other, maybe do some bingo. 
We are potentially going to have one of our friends on for that one as well, just to really up the chaos. Join us next time when we talk about Hallmark Christmas movies in January. It's fine. Don't worry about it. In the meantime, I Will Fight You comes out every five weeks. You can find us wherever you download podcasts. Uh, If you would like to support us, a like, review, subscribe is always great. You can talk to us on social media. We have a Twitter X thing still, but you <laughs> As know, of this moment it hasn't collapsed into the sea. <laughs> yeah, but you know, don't pay money for Twitter. <laughs> if they make you, don't do that. I'm on Blue Sky presently. We have a crooked Russian cam thing there, but you know, you're always going to be able to find stuff about us on our website, crookedrussiancam.horse or crookedrussiancam.gay. That's where you get links to this and all of our other podcasts. If you want to support us with money, patreon.com. Yeah, don't give that dollar to Twitter. Give that dollar to us once a month <laughs> at patreon.com slash the gem jam, where you can get early episodes of I Will Fight You. And also we have a tier where you can get our show notes for our episodes. We also have stuff for our other shows on there as well. It's a good time. We also have a Discord. There's a link to that on our website. Go to our website. Go to the dot gay horse. <laughs> Don't type dot gay horse into the URL bar. You will get nowhere good. No, 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 no. Dot gay or dot horse. It is in our soul, the gay horse, but <laughs> they are separate Venn diagrams. Kit, I think you said you had some stuff you wanted to share? Yes, it's actually been quite a long time since we last recorded, and I keep publishing stuff at a rate that is frankly inadvisable. So first off, I've got a new short story out called Lockout, which is about using the right to repair as a way to reclaim bodily autonomy through the metaphor of a ex-soldier with a robot arm. So you can find that for free on my website at inferiorwit.com, or you can get an ebook version wherever ebooks are sold. It's free most everywhere except on Amazon, where they won't let me price a thing at free, so it's instead 90 cents. But if you file for a price change, they'll correct it to free. I also am taking advantage of the fact that Sherlock Holmes is now fully public domain and nobody can sue me about dick. And I'm now releasing a sort of episodic series of novelettes called The Case File of Jay Moriarty, which is a modern day take on Moriarty, Sherlock Holmes's most famous villain and his partner in crime, Sebastian Moran. And they kiss in that one. So I feel like that's relevant to some interests of people who listen to this podcast. So yeah, you can find the first part, Jay Moriarty violates the Official Secrets Act everywhere ebooks are sold and also on my website. And you can find the second part. The second part will be out by the time this episode comes out. So that one's called Sebastian Moran Gets Mauled by a Tiger. All right, dope. Check those out. Join us next time when we will be talking about some Hallmark Christmas movies. And until then, I'm Annie. I'm Kit. And I'm Mac. And we have fought you. <laughs> <laughs>